Why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Revelation? Ben, you can camp on that opening uh, slide there until you hear me say something that sounds like what you see next. Um, we're not, uh, we aren't live uh, today uh, because Mark Zuckerberg is currently mad at us, we think. No, not really. <laughs> no, no, he might be, but no, not, not us in particular. There is actually a complication with the, the, whole, the whole system that we use to connect is not just local, it's anyway, the, it's all across the thing. But we will be uploading our service, uh, the, the message up to YouTube today. So that can be, if you want to see that or, or review it or evaluate it or send it to headquarters, it's fine. <laughs> it's, okay. it's okay, I have friends there. Have you opened your Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 14? Let's do that. Revelation 14. Would you all say Revelation 14? And here's, I mean, really, after today, we are two-thirds done with this bad boy. We are, not that you're eager to be finished, but we are going to move through. And it gets kind of, the, the pace sort of picks up, except for next week, we, we come back to some bowls of wrath. So become, come next week for some bowls of wrath. Amen. <laughs> Honey, I think we're going to the beach next week. Uh, uh, okay, no, it'll be, it's all good, but... We want to remember what the book of Revelation is. It's a, it's a letter written using symbolic language to communicate real truths. Done so to directly to a church, not just a local church, but a group of local churches, and then the church at large, struggling under persecution and resisting compromise. Persecution on the outside, compromise on the in, and they are, they are in this struggle within themselves and the world around them. The book of Revelation is intended to inspire, here we go, Ben, it's intended to inspire hope, give comfort, and strengthen our resolve. To inspire our hope, to give us comfort, and strengthen our resolve. In the preceding chapters, John the Revelator has unmasked for his audience the powers that lurk behind the historical threats to the churches. I mean, and he's used really exciting language, language that has got some of our, some of our kiddos that have joined us in the services excited, excited because we've talk, he's talked about dragons and beasts and eagles and, and rivers and fire and Boy, has it been exciting. Remember, all of those are symbolic to communicate real things. What we have, what we have uh, seen John help us see is that the church, may, according to their experience or their, what were they, they were experiencing at that time, to them, salvation seemed to be found in submitting to the social political expectations around them. Meaning they could escape, they could, they could escape punishment, they could es- escape persecution, they could escape poverty and even death if they yielded, if they cooperated. So salvation was found in submitting to the, to the socio-political world around them. But judgment, judgment seemed to be what was meted out by the Romans upon those who refused to acknowledge their cultural values as supreme. That's what their, their world was telling them. Salvation was found in submitting and cooperating, and judgment was, was for those who did not uh, cooperate with them. 
But what John tells us is that salvation and judgment are exactly the opposite of what they seemed. In Revelation 12 and and 13, John has shown us what was really happening from a spiritual perspective, and that was that satanic forces were and are behind the world powers that threatened the church. That sounds, that, I suppose, not, it's not an accident to us that, that that sounds almost silly to say, well, those are satanic powers. Honestly, the enemy has done a really good job getting people not to believe that he's real. And in so doing, just fully partnering with him. But John says this is real. Now, in chapter 14, John will show us how things will be. We've seen how things are. We've seen what's happening in the world around us with the dragon and these beasts and the war that is being waged against the church. But now we'll see, if you will, the Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Again, in chapter 14, he tells us how things will be. In chapter, in verses 1 through 5, we will see that salvation actually is for those who are sealed with the mark of the Lamb. And in verses 9 through 11, we'll see that judgment is for those who bear the mark of the beast. Between these passages in verses 6 and 7, we will see the message that makes the difference. There is a single message that divides destiny. It is the eternal gospel. The gospel includes an invitation or a command to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And it also includes a warning for those who will not. One way or the other, everyone is marked for destiny. Gently say that with me, will you please? Marked for destiny. We begin with verse 1. John shows us the lamb and his marked. Verse 1 says, Then I looked, and behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him, here we go, 144,000 having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. First of all, the lamb is on Mount Zion. What? What is that? Why is this important? If you look back at Psalm chapter 2 and verse 6, the psalmist uh, uh, speaking by the Spirit of the Lord here says, But as for me, listen, I have installed my king upon Mount Zion or upon Zion, my holy mountain. Mount Zion, all the way dating back to the prophetic and poetic literature of the Old Testament, Mount Zion is a place designated for the reign of the king. And John says, I behold, the lamb is standing on Mount Zion. This is what John sees regarding the lamb. He is, this, the lamb of God is now reigning as king. He's seeing ahead now. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews tells us, but, talking to us, but you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. 
the writer of Hebrews describes Mount Zion as a spiritually significant symbol. It is the city of a living God. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. Mount Zion here is the epicenter of eternity. And the Lamb is there. And who's with him? So this is what, but, but we've already seen uh, this image in Revelation chapter 7, where John has seen the Lamb and the King himself reigning and gathered with those who belong to him. And in, in, and in 7, verses 16 and 17, John has seen that this, uh, 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 with those that are around the Lamb, he says, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Who's with the Lamb? John sees 144,000. Now, if you've been with us since chapter 7, we've already acknowledged that this is not the elite crew. This is not the Green Berets. This is, this is not the, 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 those, the, the special elect uh, brute force, uh, the brute force of, uh, of heaven. The 144,000 connotes the completeness of God's true people. You've got 12 tribes and 12 apostles and, and then the number of 1,000, and it's just this, this, this number that communicates completeness. This is not, everybody smile big, this is simply not a remnant of ethnic Jews. It's very important with everybody big smiling well, this, that, that, that we, Revelation, after the cross, God has no longer dealt with people according to their bloodline, but according to a different bloodline. There's a new bloodline. And everybody that's covered by that blood is in, the, in the scriptures is called a true Israelite. Father Abraham had. I am one of them. And so are you. So what should we do? You should do that. These numbers, this number, this 144,000 are the totality. This is a, a, a picture, a vision. This is the totality of God's people throughout the ages. And there's a name on their foreheads. The name, that name on their foreheads is the same as the seal that we've already again seen in chapter 7. In chapter 7, they said, wait, they, these need to be sealed or marked as belonging to God. This seal carries the idea of being protected or authenticated. It designates ownership. These belong to the Lamb. In John chapter 1, verse 12, John the Apostle says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right, the exousia, the right to become children of God. You know, it's not an uncommon uh, euphemism, bumper sticker statement for folks to say, hey man, we're all children of God. Well, we're all creations of God. We're all beloved of God. We've all been called of God. But the scriptures actually say that you have to be given the right to become a child of God. Now, you don't have to wait in line. You don't have to hope your name gets called to all who believe. To all who believe. Say it with me. To all who believe. To them are given. They have earned. To them are given the right 
to be called children of God. And this is the mark. The belief, those who believe, they are authorized, they are sealed. Furthermore, in Revelation, we see that the seal or the name empowers saints to persevere through adversity. They belong and they behave like they belong. One more time. They belong and they behave like they belong. And here's what that looks like. Verse 2 says, And I heard, and I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder, and the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Verse 3, And they sang a new song. Ha <laughs> ha, everybody say a new song. That's what happens. Well, but oh, it gets better. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Hey, hey, I, I, have, a, I have a tiny bit of FOMO. I'm not as a FOMO as other people, fear of missing out. But, but how would you like to be one of the 24 elders that have been there for a nigh eternity, and these, noob, these noobs are singing, and you don't get to know the song? No one, they sang a new song and, and nobody knew it. Nobody knew it except for the 140,000, 44,000 who had been purchased, who had been redeemed. Nobody knew the song except for the redeemed. You should say that with me. Nobody knew the song except for the redeemed. The, the, anth- the anthem is the song of the redeemed. It's not the song of angels. It's not the song of elders. It's not the song of heavenly hosts. It's the song of those who were lost but now found. It's the song of those who were blind but now see. It's the, sign, the song of those who were hopeless but now have found help and healing. It's the sound of the broken that have, that have experienced blessedness. It's the sound of those who were separated but have been restored. It is the sound of hope and love and joy. It is the song of victory. It's the song of the redeemed. And I've heard someone say it is his favorite song of all. Give me just a moment and endure this with me, my joy. He loves to hear the wind sing as it whistles through the pines and mountain leaves. And he loves to hear the raindrops as they splash to the ground in a magic melody. He smiles in sweet approval as the waves crash the rocks in harmony. And creation joins in unity to sing him majestic songs of praise. And he loves to hear the angels as they sing, Holy, holy is the Lamb. Heaven's choirs in harmony lift up praises to the great I am. But he lifts his hand <laughs> every single time, every single time, I don't know, 20 years. But he lifts his hand, but he lifts his hands for silence when the wicked saved by grace begin to sing. And a million angels listen as a newborn soul sings, I have been redeemed. You only know this song if you've been redeemed. If you don't know it, then you haven't been. 
And these are the ones, John says in chapter 4, these are the ones who have not been defiled. (laughs) This is interesting. Stay with me before you get offended or triggered. Uh, These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. What in the world? Hey, John, hang on. Listen to him now. Defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who, who follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the lamb. In verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Okay, these are those who have behaved like they belong. They are sealed, they are marked with the lamb, and they acted like it. When it says that they've kept themselves chaste, they've not defiled themselves. First of all, if that were, again, if were we to lean literally, that would mean that these 144,000 are only men and who have never been married. That's it, bro. You're right? 140,000 errands. Everybody else, no luck. Everybody else, go home. <laughs> Where's my literalist now? No. Well, not everything literal. (laughs) Most of it's not. All right. This is a symbolic description of those who, as the bride of Christ, have kept themselves from defiling relationships with the pagan world system. It is, a, it, is, it, is a, it is an Old Testament figure of speech, literally meant for them. In the Old Testament, it was quite literal. But here, John is seeing that these are people who have not defiled themselves. They have, been, they, have a, they have come to Christ as a virgin bride. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I, listen, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ... I might present you as a pure virgin. The idea here is that these are those who have given themselves wholly to Jesus Christ. They follow the Lamb. They follow the Lamb, yes, in in heaven and on Mount Zion, because Revelation chapter 7, verse 17 says, for the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. But John is not just talking about activity in heaven. They're not just following the Lamb in heaven, but their lives here were marked by following Jesus. Everybody say, follow the Lamb. This is the, those who are marked with a, the, the seal of the Lamb, we follow Him. This is Mark, Matthew 4, 19 and chapter 9 and verse 9. Uh, says when Jesus, His instructions from the get-go have always been, follow me. We follow Jesus' life and his word with our whole lives. Those who belong to the Lamb, follow the Lamb. Those who belong to the Lamb, follow the Lamb. And John says they are first fruits. In Revelation, the church is an offering to the Lamb, a highly valued and best offering. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23 says, We are the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. James 1.18 says that in the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. The whole church redeemed is an, is a first fruits offering you nobody is a second class second place leftover offering to the lord nobody nobody's an afterthought nobody's a get in on the second try everybody purchased by the blood of jesus is a first fruits offering to the lord then it says no lie is found in their mouth 
Does that mean they are not fibbers? Yes. But it's a characteristic that describes integrity and honesty and a purity. Uh, it, it reaches back all throughout Scripture. This is a, a virtue that is ascribed to those loyal to the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah 3.13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. John chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him and, sees, and says to Nathanael, Behold, an Israelite indeed, one in whom there is no deceit. Second Peter, pardon, 1 Peter 2.22, for, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for those who follow in his, follow in his steps who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. This is a trait modeled by the Lamb and mandated for those who follow him. They are blameless. The whole idea, this is the... This is the sum result of all of what he's trying to say is these that are marked by the, with, with the Lamb's seal, they are blameless. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27 says, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is what the mark of the Lamb does to you. It declares that you belong and empowers you and calls you to behave like it. Jude one twenty four. and now to him. In case anybody here thinks, oh man, I can't live like that. Listen, Jude one twenty four. and now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. This is the, this is the how of the who. This is the behaving of those who belong. This is the life of those marked by the Lamb. They follow him, and this is their destiny. Verse 6, this group... There's two groups in in chapter 14, and they're separated by this proclamation of the gospel. We've heard about the first group, those marked with the lamb, they're marked for the lamb, they have the lamb's mark on them, they're on Mount Zion. Then we hear this, and then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach. Would you all say eternal gospel? Eternal gospel to preach. Those who live to, to preach to those who live on earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. This is the heralding of the gospel, and it is eternal. The gospel is eternal. There would be there might be some commentators who want to see this passage and say, No, no, this is not the gospel, this is a different message. <laughs> and I understand where they're going because they, they forgive me, people, some folks need this to be a different message for it to fit into a different template of interpretation. But nowhere in the scripture is gospel other than gospel. The good news, there's just one gospel. Uh, a week or two ago, I had a lady call, I hope you're not in the room, I love you if you are. I had a, week, I had a, lady, a lady call before church, answered the phone, and she said, uh, do you, she, asked, she literally asked me which gospel we preached. 
and I, and, and I put away all of my smarty britches, stuck them, <laughs> stuck them back in the drawer, and I just said, ma'am, the scriptures tell us there's only one gospel. She said, well, thank you very much, and then hung up. If you're, uh, if you're looking for a different gospel, try the yellow pages. Uh, But what's powerful here to hear is that the gospel is eternal. Would you say that aloud with me? The gospel, the New American Standard says the eternal gospel. And that's true, and I love a good, wooden, accurate version. But if you float around a little bit, other versions will say this, the, 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 that the angel is heralding the everlasting good news. Same, same, exactly the same. But the eternal gospel is the, is the, ever, it's the everlasting good news. You know what that means? That means one bazillion years from now, the gospel will still be good news. It'll never just be a fact. It'll always be good news. Always. And it is this news, it is this message that is, that is heralded uh, across the world. And he says, uh, uh, in verse 7, And he said with a loud voice, uh, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. This is the heralding of the gospel. This is the everlasting good news. Uh, This is an announcement of the reign of God. And it requires those who fear him, or pardon me, it requires those who hear this news to believe and to fear God and to give him glory. And then in verse 8, another angel, a second one, follows him saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. At the same time, following this heralding of the gospel, there is an announcement of the fall of Babylon, the fall of the world system, the fall really of Satan's influence. How is this possible that there could seemingly be a concurrent announcement of salvation and judgment? Because that is what happens with the gospel. Jesus in Luke 4, when when he stood and opened the scroll of Isaiah and he read from it, the passage says that, that he said this, that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. The gospel is a command to believe, to believe news that is supremely, supremely good. Pristine, beautiful, sublime good news. And also a warning for anyone who would not embrace, not accept this good news. Here the angel announces the destruction of the idolatrous system of the world. It's a destruction that began, and, it, and we, will, we will see it, or one day it will be complete. When it talks about Babylon, it doesn't mean that city, the city of Babylon per se. It says the great city. It, it, we've talked about this. This is the world organized in rebellious opposition to the knowledge of God, and it has fallen. It is falling. Its structures have been removed like a great big Jenga thing. It's about to go. And then John combines two thoughts. He says that Babylon has made the nations 
drink the wine of her impurity. Meaning that this world system, various cities, at John's time it was absolutely Rome was part of that. That this Babylon corrupts the world with her evil ways. And that this impurity has brought down upon it the very wrath of God. The nations, having drunk the wine of the fornication of Babylon, have really drunk the wine of the wrath of God. Verse 9. Another group. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Now, we talked about that before. Verse 10, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Those who worship the beast, who identify with and are loyal to his blasphemy, will also drink the wine of God's wrath. And John tells us that that wine will be in full strength. What does it mean in full strength? Well, it was relatively common to add two, two parts water to wine, to, 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 you know, to thin it out, to stretch it out, to lighten it up or whatever. It was not uncommon to, uh, to water down their wine. But a, a full-strength wine was no water added. The full thing. And that's what John says, they will, that you will drink the cup of God's wrath with not watered down. And that wrath is called fire and brimstone. This is a reference, of course, or we know this reference from, from Genesis chapter 19 and verse 24 when, when it says, And the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The effect is torment with what we could almost call burning sulfur. Now you might say, hey, Dad, does that mean literally burning sulfur? Should we interpret that? Well, even if we take that symbolically, it must be taken very seriously. There is a modern vogue for kind of dispensing with hell. And it really isn't that modern. It's been around for, for centuries and centuries. But every so often it comes back around. You know, like bell bottoms. Eventually those will come back around. Fashion kind of comes around in the same way there's, a, there's, there's fashion in theology. And sometimes it's fashionable to believe things a certain way. And, it's, and, and for the last... 100 years or so, there have been ongoing voices to say, hey, let's dispense with this idea of hell. Well, the idea that we can dispense with hell has no counterpoint, has no counterpoint, no place in the book of Revelation. John is quite sure that the consequences of sin follow sinners 
into the life to come. Here they may rejoice over their misdeeds, but there they will suffer for them. If you're looking for relief <laughs> for the, a pause or a break here, you just need to buckle up because here's verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is why it's super important. That remember, we're not talking about a, a tattoo or a computer chip. We're talking about identity and loyalty to blasphemy. John says that the smoke of their torment, not only do they experience this judgment of fire and brimstone, but then John says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. The punishment of the damned is not a temporary measure. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. The torment in verse 10 is eternal. If John had intended to, for us to understand that this would be a limited or abbreviated season, there are a number of ways he could have done so, a number of symbolic numbers. He's already done that several times, five months, 40, five years, or, you know, uh, five months, he says, one place, 42 months, uh, 1,260 days. He could have done any of that, but he, you have, but in the text, he uses no symbolic number, no measurement other than forever. He talks about the smoke of their torment. His Old Testament audience, their, their, their familiarity with the book of Isaiah would have resonated and they would have heard that the, in Isaiah 34, that for the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams will be turned into pitch and, it will, and its loose earth into brimstone. Its land will become a burning pitch. It will not be quenched night or day. Its smoke will go up forever. Isaiah 66, 24, and they will go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and it will be an abhorrence to all mankind. The greater the sense of entitlement, the greater our sense of self-rule, the greater our sense of everybody of everybody's a winner and gets a trophy, the more the concept of a a duration of punishment of, in hell is rejected. But I want you to take a moment and consider the reality of what John is describing. Really, right now, across this room, just take a moment and just consider what John, let, letting John speak for himself and what he is seeing, consider the reality. He has said that there is, there is a blessed and blissful hope for anyone who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a blessed and blissful eternity of being with the Lamb, protected from suffering forevermore, 
and having every tear wiped away from your eyes. And then he says, for those who will not believe, for those who will not receive the, the mark of the Lamb, for those who will walk in their own disobedience, for those who will also, for those who, who identify and are loyal to the, to the blasphemy of the beast. He says that there will be torment forever. In some ways, there isn't a more powerful or necessary message. It's a message that's avoided and, 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 and glossed over far too often. And, and it is a message that is avoided, I think, to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, uh, to the damage of our conscience, to the damage of our, of our joy. It's, you might think, oh, what's the big deal about me? You might have a difficult time when Peter says, oh, you have, you're saved, and so you rejoice with an everlasting joy full of glory and inexpressible. And you're like, oh, I don't know if my joy is that great. You don't remember what you've been saved from then. If you remember what you've been saved from, you, you couldn't help. You, you, you could, you, you, it wouldn't be too hard to get your joy on. It'd be a little bit harder to lose track of it. This, after this, there's a message to the saints in verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This is not an empty description. This is a prescription for the faithful. This is why, because of what we've just seen, those two extremes, this is why we live the way we live. This is why you and I are steadfast. See, John's language does not intend to deliver a doctrine of hell for outsiders. It's not necessarily, it's, that, that, it's true, but he's not writing to the world around them about hell. He's writing to the church and he's warning them about hell it functions to warn those inside the church who would ponder the question is it such a terrible thing to participate in roman worship is it such a terrible thing for us just to say caesar is lord can we just give in can't we just cooperate can't we just submit to the beast and john's answer is yes it is more terrible than you can imagine Christians who refused such participation in, in, the, in the world around them, they were risking death. And the question they would have is, there, it were, we, we might face death, but is there anything worse than death? And John's answer is this, the judgment of God that lies beyond death is worse than you can imagine. The gospel today is largely viewed as therapeutic. It is largely preached as a therapeutic gospel, Thera- meaning, meaning it helps and it heals and it, it helps you today. And you know what? It absolutely does. The gospel absolutely is the best therapy. It is the only healing. It is the only hope. It'll help you. It'll heal you. It'll, it'll improve your life. It'll change your marriage and your parenting. It'll help you figure out what you, how to manage your money and live your life and, and have joy. It'll do all of those things. But the reason why it does all of those things is singularly this, because eternity is real and is trying to get your attention. 
And so the goodness of God that breaks into your life today is to call your heart and to, and to woo your heart and your soul to trust in Jesus. Trust him, love him, serve him, follow the lamb, follow the lamb, follow the lamb, follow the lamb. For it's, it's, every, it's, it's worth everything, it's worth everything, follow the lamb. Eternity is real. And God has sent his son for this purpose that you might escape every part and parcel of judgment that awaits those who reject the lamb. The gospel, the real power and hope of the gospel is that it alone will save you from a great and horrifying judgment. But the good news is if you follow the lamb, if you'll trust in and obey Jesus, not only because, not just because of what you will shun, but because there's so much to gain. You will, you will hunger no longer or thirst anymore. The sun will not beat down on you or any heat. The lamb in the center of the throne will be your shepherd. He'll guide you to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from your eyes. And you will sing the song of the redeemed. Therefore, we behave, we behave here like those who belong there. Finally, verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Here's the deal, friends. For those who die, for those who are martyred or or, or who sleep in the Lord, there is blessed peace and hope. It's over now, but what you have done will not be forgotten. Your deeds, your works will follow you. You may be gone, but your deeds will follow you. There will be an echo of your life here and there. Time and again, the Lord tells his churches, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. Revelation 2, 2, 19, 3, 1, 3, 8, 3, 15. God records, God rewards. There isn't one deed, one work, one seed, one act of service and loyalty that he has lost. They will follow you into the life to come. Just as the consequence of disobedience follows, so will the blessings of obedience. Now, finally, this, is all, this last part we'll be able to cover quickly because now we have come to, once again, the end of this session, and we come to the end. We come to the end again. Quickly here. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the white cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came up out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put your sickle and reap, for the hour has come to reap, because the harvest on the earth is ripe. So then he, so, and, and then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the, the crowned one is either a depiction of Christ himself or a significant angel. Neither is the point. The point is the harvest occurs because the Lord himself will one day descend with a sh- from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. And then, verse 17, and then another came out. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, who has the power over fire, 
came out, of the, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. This is Joel 13, 3.13. Put, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the winepress is full. Listen, the vats overflow, their wickedness is great. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Verse 20, and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came from out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, now the numbers have here reflect measures that are significant and actually could cover the area of the Holy Land. But what is important for us is not to try to geek out over the measure of a horse's bridle and miles, but rather it is more important that we freak out. We are to be in shock at the prospect of such judgment because eternity is real and is trying to get our attention. 